You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In the 1960s, many young men joined the fight for equality in the American Civil Rights Movement. Boycotts, marches, and protests were organized by groups like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. They often faced harsh and violent opposition, like the day known as Bloody Sunday, when police and sheriffs attacked the unarmed marchers with billy clubs and tear gas. One young man who was beaten on that day was General Larry Platt, best known lately for auditioning for American Idol with the song Pants on the Ground. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Life started out pretty normal for Charles Sherwood Stratton when he was born to a housekeeper and a carpenter in 1838 in Connecticut. Pretty normal ended when he was six months old, as did his growth. He basically just stopped growing. He was otherwise healthy and doctors were stumped. Normal ended completely in the winter of 1842 when one Phineas Taylor Barnum showed up at his family's home chasing rumors of an extraordinarily small child. Four-year-old Charlie was now in show business, earning his family $3 a week. Barnum immediately began promoting his tiny talent. When Charlie and his mother arrived the following week to New York, they were surprised to see banners on the American Museum bragging about the arrival of General Tom Thumb. In typical Barnum style, he had taken absolutely wild liberties with the truth. He took the name Tom Thumb from an English fairy tale character, basically Thumbelina. Posters and handbills claiming that General Tom Thumb had been brought to America from Europe at great expense, and that he was 11 years old. Not sure how that jibes military service and an 11-year-old. And it was nice that he aged him up to 11. We wouldn't want people to think that he was exploiting a small child. Ah, don't kid yourself, this is pre-child labor laws, or really any labor laws. There was no such thing as a cultural concept of exploitation. Charlie and his mother moved into an apartment in the museum building, and Barnum set about teaching Charlie to sing, dance, and do impressions. And act like a pre-teen instead of a preschooler, I guess. Barnum recalled him as an apt student with a great deal of native talent and a keen sense of the ludicrous. By all accounts, young Charlie Stratton loved performing, and he and Barnum were genuinely fond of one another. General Tom Thumb was a sensation. He wore different costumes on stage from a Scottish Highlander. There can be only one. No, not that kind. That's the one. To Napoleon Bonaparte. Barnum even did a double act with Tom Thumb, playing the straight man to Thumb's jokes. Tickets were a hot commodity. 
Before long, Barnum was paying the Strattons $50 a week, an enormous salary in the 1840s. Two years into his career, the general, age six, I'll remind you, set sail for England, armed with a letter of introduction from newspaper publisher Horace Greeley to see the American ambassador in London. Barnum was angling for them to see Queen Victoria, though he hedged his bets for the trip just so he wouldn't lose any money if he failed. He advertised a number of Tom Thumb shows as limited farewell performances to drum up fresh interest. By some amount of luck, and I'm sure no small amount of cunning, a royal audience was arranged, and Barnum and the little general were invited to visit Buckingham Palace and perform for Queen Victoria, her family, and a few dozen nobles. According to Barnum, so big old grain of pretzel salt on the veracity of the account, they were standing at the farther end of the room when the doors were thrown open and the general walked in, looking like a wax doll gifted with the power of locomotion. Surprise and pleasure were depicted on the countenances of the royal circle at beholding this remarkable specimen of humanity, so much smaller than they had evidently expected to find him. The general advanced with a firm step, and as he came within hailing distance, made a very graceful bow and proclaimed, "'Good evening, ladies and gentlemen!' A burst of laughter followed this salutation. The queen then took him by the hand, led him about the gallery, and asked him many questions, the answers to which kept the party in an uninterrupted strain of merriment. He then went into his usual routine. The night was a smashing success, plus or minus at the very end when the queen's poodle suddenly attacked the tiny dancer, but he was able to fend the dog off with his little walking stick. The visit to Queen Victoria was perhaps the greatest publicity windfall of Barnum's entire career, and that's saying something, and it made General Tom Thumb's theatre performances a huge hit in London. Barnum had a miniature carriage built to take Tom Thumb around the city. Even though Londoners were clamoring for more, Thumb set off to play other European capitals. Back in the States, he toured, you know, the States, and then back to Europe, and then a truly amazing thing happened. He started growing again. Over the course of his teens, he grew from two feet to three. In the early 1860s, General Tom Thumb met and fell in love with another diminutive performer in Barnum's employ, Lavinia Warren. That's one of my favorite names, Lavinia. And the two became engaged. Barnum, of course, was thrilled and promoted their 1863 wedding, describing them as the loving Lilliputians. Crowds wanting to see the compact couple had to be held back by the police. The couple stood atop a grand piano at the reception to greet some 10,000 guests at the Metropolitan Hotel. The best man at the wedding was fellow performer George Washington Morrison Nutt, who carried the fake rake of Commodore, and the maid of honor was Minnie Warren, Lavinia's sister. On their honeymoon trip, General Tom Thumb and Lavinia were guests of President Abraham Lincoln at the White House. They were a worldwide sensation, touring the globe for three years, even making it to Australia, which is an arduous enough journey now, let alone in the 1860s. In a few of the couple's performances, they held a baby they said was theirs. They did have a child who would have been of average height, but didn't live to see two years old. 
Some researchers believe that Barnum filled the gap by renting a child from the local foundling hospital. General and Mrs. Tom Thumb continued to perform until the 1880s, when they retired to a custom mansion in Massachusetts, built to scale. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Haskins, host of the fifth annual live stream for The Cure. This year, podcast partners and content creators from all over the world will join me from May 19th to the 23rd to try to raise $15,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. Each year, I am reminded time and again of the incredible power and compassion of the indie creators, audiences, and podcasters who set aside their time, energy, and money to make this event a success. I am overwhelmed again this year with an outpouring of support and passion from others who are dedicated to the goal of a future immune to cancer. And I wanted to take a moment while you're listening to this show and say, thank you. Thank you, and I'm so eternally grateful for you. I like to say together, we can make a difference. And because of you, we have. From the bottom of my heart and from the entire team that makes Livestream for the Cure possible, thank you. To learn more about this year's event, please visit LivestreamForTheCure.com. It pleases me immensely to be participating in Livestream for the Cure again this year. And I'm doing it a little different. Whereas last time I kicked off the day... This time, my slot is at 9 p.m., meaning it's your brain on facts after dark. I'm working blue, folks. Elvis Presley was the king of rock and roll, and to this day, he's one of the highest posthumously earning celebrities. To folks in the 1950s, he seemed to come out of nowhere and skyrocketed to unprecedented fame. In reality, his career was carefully orchestrated by his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, a Dutch immigrant and shrewd businessman, described as a cross between P.T. Barnum and W.C. Fields. He was a larger-than-life figure, a legend in his own right, and by legend, I mean myth. There was no such person as Colonel Tom Parker. But the truth of his life didn't come out until Parker was in his 70s and Presley long dead. Parker was actually born in the city of Breda in the Netherlands, making him Dutch. His real name was Andreas von Kirk. When he was still in his teens, Andreas fled the Netherlands by ship, arriving in Canada and making his way to Hoboken, New Jersey. The first of many questionable life decisions. There was no paperwork involved along the way, meaning he'd entered the country illegally. He worked for a while with traveling carnivals, before eventually getting into music promotion, changing his name to Tom Parker, training away his accent, very convincingly to his credit, and erasing any mention of his past. His new backstory was that he was Thomas Andrew Parker of Huntingdon, West Virginia, and he wouldn't tolerate a word otherwise from anyone. He really had been awarded the rank of colonel, but not by the military, by the governor of Louisiana in 1948 for work Parker did for his election campaign. I should explain this concept of a civilian government official bestowing an honorary military rank on someone, not only for the benefit of several listeners overseas, but for most of my American listeners, I'd hazard. Let me take a quick poll. Show of hands if you assumed Colonel Sanders was retired military. Okay, and now show of hands if you knew he was a Kentucky colonel and what that means. Actually, I just remembered I can't see you, 
So let me know on the social media instead, Facebook and Instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts and Twitter at brainonfactspod. Also, should I start a TikTok? Anyway, the ceremonial Colonel C isn't an American invention, which is somehow a relief and a disappointment simultaneously. During the Renaissance, a lord or prominent gentleman could purchase the rank of colonel. This would require them to be a colonel, but as luck would have it, they could deputize a lieutenant colonel to do the actual work for them. In the colonies, men of the landed gentry were given the title to commission companies, finance local militias, or head a colony, but no need to muck in with soldiers this time. Now, the words colony and C-O-L-O-N-E-L colonel look very similar, but etymology is as etymology does, and they are not related. Though Parker was a ceremonial colonel and never outright claimed to be a military officer, he was more than happy to strongly hint that he was a full-bird colonel during his service in World War II, and then just leave people to fill in the rest. Parker did serve in the Army, but only attained the rank of private. Parker enlisted in the Army in 1929 for two years, then re-upped. Don't ask me how he was able to enlist, being an illegal alien living under an assumed name and whatnot. Chalk it up to people being more likely to believe something without proof in those days, and or vital records just being easier to falsify. I mean, you could have a New Jersey driver's license without a picture on it until the 1990s. Parker's second hitch in the Army didn't go so well. In 1932, he walked off his post and was declared AWOL, absent without official leave. He was quickly arrested and spent the next few months in a military prison, which would be harsh enough, but he spent much of that time in solitary confinement. This took an enormous toll on him mentally, resulting in what is described only as a breakdown. The Washington Post reported, some years later in Parker's life, that he spent several months recuperating at Walter Reed Army Hospital and was officially diagnosed as being in a constitutional psychotic state, which is also the name of my band's next studio album. Parker was discharged from the Army. When World War II broke out a decade later, Parker knew the need for cannon fodder would mean standards would drop dramatically and he was at risk of being drafted. To make sure this wouldn't happen, he deliberately gained as much weight as possible. Yes, like that Simpsons episode. With a similar target weight, actually. But Parker had to put on more weight to get there until he weighed around 300 pounds or 126 kilos. In 1955, Parker heard about a talented young singer who was quickly amassing a following, especially with teenage girls and young women, one Elvis Presley. Parker met Presley during an intermission between two shows that Presley was playing at the Ellis Auditorium in Memphis. Parker immediately set out to make himself part of Presley's budding career. He was able to convince Presley's then-manager Bob Neal to take him on to work jointly to make Elvis a household name. Sure as God made little green apples, a year later, Elvis set the airwaves on fire with Heartbreak Hotel, Hound Dog, Don't Be Cruel, and Blue Suede Shoes, not to mention a cross-country tour, lots of television appearances, including the infamously cropped Ed Sullivan show, and his first movie, Love Me Tender. Bob Neal was only there for the first quarter of that explosive year, before Parker was managing Presley full-time. 
Colonel Tom Parker was now the manager of the biggest musical star in the world, with cojones to match. Where most managers take a small percentage of the earnings of their performers, Parker's rate was 20%. Initially. As the gross rose, so did his take. Ten years in, Parker would be taking a gobsmacking, mind-numbing 50%. And he constantly pushed Elvis to earn more. With one conspicuous exception, and hold on to that asterisk for just a second. It's estimated that Elvis earned over $1 billion in the course of his career. The contract that granted Parker the 50% also allowed him to charge additional fees for the services he provided, grinding away even more of the bankroll. Parker was now making more than the artist he managed. In addition to brutal touring and recording schedules, Parker signed Elvis to star in some really bad movies, though sadly not bad enough to come back around the wheel to being enjoyable a la The Room. But those movies made tons of money, a collective $2.2 billion in domestic gross alone. Plus, each movie meant soundtrack royalties and the inherent publicity for the rest of Elvis's catalog. What's weird, or extra evil on Parker's part, was that Elvis was sought for good parts in good movies, like West Side Story, Midnight Cowboy, and A Star is Born. But no, Elvis had to make movies where he sings, Yoga is as yoga does. I would include a clip, but I don't want the YouTube port of the show to get copyright struck, and honestly, it sounds like it would be too painful to listen to. In 1973, Parker sold the rights to Presley's recording catalog to RCA for a ridiculously lowball $5.4 million. From 69 to 76, Elvis was, as they say, in residency in Vegas. Towards the end, he was playing two shows a night, seven days a week. At one point, he went over 45 weeks without a night off, playing a total of 636 consecutive shows. Each of those exhausting weeks earned Elvis $125,000, meaning it earned Parker at least half that much. This was when Elvis's eating and substance abuse really started to spiral out of control. There are many who say that Parker hastened Presley's death by pushing him so hard for so long. This wasn't regular workaday greed. Parker gambled. And not well by the looks of things. Elvis, being in Las Vegas, earned Parker the money he needed to wind up in debt to the casinos and the bookies, whereupon he'd push Presley to earn more money. Back to that asterisk. Parker kept as many earnings avenues open as possible, with one ginormous exception. Despite being one of the biggest acts in the world, Elvis didn't see the world. The closest he got to an international tour was in 1957, for three dates in Canada. Calling that an international tour is real weekend party in a field band energy. But yeah, I totally would have done that if I had booked a Game of Thrones burlesque show in Toronto. And for those who just got on this crazy train at the last station, I did produce the only George R. R. Martin-approved Game of Thrones burlesque tribute show and got to perform for the man himself. Buy me a drink, I'll tell you all about it. Now, notably, Parker did not accompany Elvis on this trip. He didn't have a passport, no word of if he ever tried to get one, 
and he was pretty much guaranteed to have been found out. He also couldn't let Elvis out of his immediate control. Parker consistently turned down offers for Presley to tour in Europe and Japan, deals often worth millions of dollars. It didn't have to be like that, though. Parker could have been a naturalized citizen. The Alien Registration Act of 1940 had offered amnesty to people in the country illegally. Plus, the manager of the biggest star in the world definitely had lots of powerful friends. It was realistically possible for him to have reached the president directly to ask for help. There is one theory why Parker chose to hide in plain sight rather than getting right. He was hiding from justice after murdering a woman. In 1929, a woman named Anna van der Enden was killed behind her husband's grocery store in Breda during a robbery. This was roughly the same time Parker stowed away for Canada. Now, the police investigation at the time didn't turn up any specific evidence linking Parker to the crime, but a journalist did receive a tip that it was Parker, identified by his real name. It certainly would explain Parker's hurried exodus and his intense secrecy over his true identity. In 1981, four years after Elvis died, Albert Goldman published a biography of the singer that not only excoriated Parker, it exposed his true identity to the world. At the same time, his financial malfeasance also came to light. Memphis probate judge Blanchard Toole ordered an investigation of the singer's estate on behalf of Elvis's 12-year-old daughter, Lisa Marie. Toole found that, in addition to the ridiculous 50% cut, which Parker once defended as, no, Elvis takes 50% of what I make, Parker had defrauded the estate over $7 million in the previous three years alone. Parker, ever the showman, ever the con man, primed a brilliant legal strategy. Did I say brilliant? I meant idiotic car crash waiting to happen. Parker officially claimed that he was a citizen of no nation, which is a thing, it's called statelessness, but thus would not be subject to any country's laws, which I'm pretty sure is not a thing, but I'm not a lawyer. His argument was, since he'd served in the U.S. military without permission from the Dutch government, that meant he had forfeited his Dutch citizenship. But he'd never been naturalized as a U.S. citizen, so he wasn't subject to American laws either. Sadly, the theory was never tested, as the case was settled out of court. It's disappointing that we'll never get to see a courtroom artist depiction of the judge's facepalm at hearing Parker's argument. What's not disappointing is all of the amazing people who support the show over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Folks like Alex P., Paul W., Jellybean, Michael W., no relation, and our newest patron, Rachel R. I hope you enjoy the early access, ad-free episodes, four dozen bonus episodes, and your stickers will be in the mail soon. It's also always a delight to get reviews. The, let's call it dry spell in book reviews, does continue. If you've read the book and you have a spare second, I'd really appreciate it if you could review the book on Amazon or Goodreads, which is, yes, the same company I know. But we do have some podcast reviews, such as this one over on Apple Podcasts from, and forgive my pronunciation, Taliazl. This podcast has everything I look for. Interesting new things to hear about and a well-spoken host. Give it a listen.
Well, to quote Big Dan Teague, you don't say much, do you, friend? But when you do, it's direct and to the point, and I salute you for it. And over on Podchaser, which is a great option for leaving reviews if your app doesn't allow for that, this one, that after I read it, I just had to sit there for a minute. I think you'll understand why. Are you looking for a podcast that is amusing, stimulating, respectful, and enjoyable? Do you want to host with a voice of silk and a subtle yet wicked sense of humor? Do you want to feel appreciated by the host as much as you appreciate her and all of her hard work? Do you want to listen to a podcast with your sweetheart and hear them say, Are you supporting Moxie on Patreon yet? True. Wyboff is a perfect podcast, even the oldest episodes with minor sound quality issues. For the price of an overrated burnt coffee product a month, Snickerdoodle asks you to give it to Moxie and Wyboff instead. Keep this mellifluous treasure going for now and forever. Snickerdoodle, all I can say, as I'm so glad we got my hormone replacement therapy straightened out, or I would be crying like a little bitch right now. And I don't say that lightly. And of course, if you find folks want to support the show, but don't necessarily want to do it through Patreon, we always have the Wyboff merch store at yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch. Port your ride over there. I just put up uh, a new design this morning. We have our social groups. You can get them from yourbrainonfacts.com slash social, a subreddit and a YouTube group. Though the very best way to support a show you like is to tell someone about it. And speaking of shows you might like, check out this one. Hello, and welcome to The Jury Room. I'm your host, Kevin, and I will be covering anything true crime, from serial killers to cold cases and everything in between. The Jury Room podcast is available on most major podcasting platforms. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, and leave a review anywhere you can. Stay safe, and thanks for listening. Everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. In my tomboy days, do they still have tomboys these days? There were some standout selections in my entertainment options. 
I never cared for Hanna-Barbera cartoons or cutesy things like My Little Ponies. Every day after school, it was Thundercats, Silverhawks, and G.I. Joe. And on the weekends, Monster Trucks and WWF. Good times. The weekday and weekend entertainment overlapped, and reality and fantasy blurred, in the form of a conspicuous chin and the fatigue-wearing man attached to it, Sergeant Slaughter. Sergeant Slaughter is the persona of Robert Remus, born in Detroit in 1948. He made his first wrestling appearance with the National Wrestling Alliance in the late 70s, wrestling under his real name, before moving to the American Wrestling Association and then joining the nascent World Wrestling Federation in 1980. By the by, for my fellow pedants in the audience, I will be referring to the company as the WWF when talking about it pre-2002, when they lost a trademark case against the World Wildlife Foundation. Not sure who could ever have gotten those two confused, but here we are. Remus spent his first two years in the WWF as a villain, or heel, under the management of the Grand Wizard, whom I immediately had to look up because that sounds like a rank in the clan. But no, it's just a silly character with a sequin turban. Carry on with your activities. It wasn't long before the character of Sergeant Slaughter was created for and around Remus, who looked the part perfectly once he was in costume. Black jungle boots, Vietnam-era BDU pants, black tank top, aviator glasses, and the four-dent felt campaign hat of marine drill instructors. He very quickly rose to the status of number one contender on the strength of his cobra clutch challenges, where he would seat wrestlers in a chair in the ring and apply his Cobra Clutch hold, offering $5,000 to anyone who could break out of it. Slaughter's wrestling career is probably best remembered for his rivalries with Hulk Hogan and the peanut butter to his jelly, the Iron Sheik, just one example of the occasionally still-used trope of scary foreigner bad guy. Over the course of the next 30 years, he left and returned to the WWF four times, and was inducted into the Wrestling Hall of Fame in 2004. But I want to stay in the 80s for a moment longer. A modified version of Sergeant Slaughter joined an elite covert special mission unit known as G.I. Joe. First appearing in the five-part TV episode entitled Arise, Serpentor, Arise. God, those miniseries were the best. In fact, Slaughter's first departure from the WWF stemmed from a dispute over whether or not his likeness could be used by Hasbro for a G.I. Joe toy. Slaughter is one of only a few real, physical people to be G.I. Joe figures, along with such names as NFL player William the Refrigerator Perry, fellow wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper, God rest the crazy bastard, and, surprisingly, astronaut Buzz Aldrin. And at the risk of shifting tone without a clutch, I would like to take a moment to remember Michael Collins, the third Apollo astronaut who never got to step out onto the surface of the moon, who passed away the week this episode was recorded. Sergeant Slaughter also appeared twice as a special guest on the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, starring fellow wrestler Captain Lou Albano. During the mid-80s, Slaughter released, and I can't believe I'm saying this, a full-length album Sergeant Slaughter and Camouflage Rocks America. It featured a number of original songs, including The Cobra Clutch, as well as a cover of Neil Diamond's America. Look, 
It was a weird time. Things were tense with Russia. There were shoulder pads in everything. And somebody told Eddie Murphy it would be a good idea to sing. The character of the Marine drill instructor was an easy sell to the public of the 80s and 90s. But Remus himself never served in the military. And you're probably saying, so what? It's a character. Children get confused by what's fake and what's real in wrestling, but adults don't. Well, therein lies the problem. Sometimes adults get fooled too. And sometimes, just sometimes, that confused adult is the wrestler himself. There's a word that entered my vocabulary during this week's research, and now I wish to forcibly insert it into your brain. Kayfabe. In professional wrestling, kayfabe is the portrayal of staged events within the industry as real or true, specifically the portrayal of competition, rivalries, and relationships between participants. Basically, it means never breaking character. Some wrestlers maintain their kayfabe even with other wrestlers far from public eyes, like the Iron Sheik, who was actually a second-generation American. Remus seemed to blur that line even further. He went beyond pretending to be a Marine and into claiming territory. For example, in a 2015 interview with KML Radio, the interviewer called him a genuine veteran who had military experience. Slaughter replied, I didn't even think about using that character referring to his first break into wrestling, until one day when inspiration suddenly struck. So I went to my locker box, pulled out my campaign cover, i.e. marine hat, and got out my swagger stick, he explained. When my wife got home from work, I had her take a disposable camera, take some pictures of me growling and being bad, and took them over to a wrestling office. This strikes me as unlikely to be true, since there was a span of a few years between him getting into wrestling and the making of Sergeant Slaughter, during which time Remus played a masked character called Super Destroyer Mark II. Also, a disposable camera in the U.S. in the late 1970s? It's really unlikely he actually had one, and I don't think he meant a Polaroid, because when you mean an Instamatic, you just say Polaroid. Questions about the truth behind Sergeant Slaughter's military history have swirled around him for years. For instance, a Baltimore Sun article from March 1985, with Slaughter's picture plastered on the cover, said, Slaughter dodges all questions about his armed service record. For good reason. That Sun article has resurfaced repeatedly over the years, periodically reigniting the question of abuse of the uniform. So what's the big deal him saying he served when he didn't? It's just a really public version of lying on your resume, right? Well, for starters, it's an actual, factual crime. In 1984, Congress passed a law prohibiting the use of the Marine Corps emblem and insignia by civilians. This gave the Marine Corps some leverage to go after Remus. They were fully aware of him, as most of the country was, even without dozens of people writing in every year demanding they do something. The Corps, quote, fired off a letter demanding that Slaughter stop because his actions reflect discredit on those who have served. They could have gone further, even prosecuting Remus, but those who made such decisions always decided against it. One suspects this is because Sergeant Slaughter, who was a face or good guy character, was, in his own way, good publicity. 
Another reason Remus's continued claims are problematic is that the WWE partners with multiple veterans organizations, uses Remus slash Slaughter as a company ambassador at military events, and refers to him as a veteran. Slaughter was included in a Veterans Day 2018 listicle of wrestlers who really did serve. According to digital content producer Kevin Powers, after graduating from high school, young Robert Remus joined the United States Marine Corps where he earned the moniker Sergeant Slaughter. Not everyone is as willing to let Remus slide or let the public continue to believe what comes easiest. Verifiable veteran turned pro wrestler turned politician Jesse the Body Ventura spoke out against Slaughter in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette in 1991 and on the Colbert Report in 2008. Why still talk about it in 2008, 30 years after Remus started wrestling? Because Remus is still at it, even in his 70s, with most of those who watched him as a starry-eyed youngster now dealing with hot flashes and IRA contributions. Remus has long given, and continues to give, out-of-character interviews where he's clearly speaking as Bob Remus, but still claims to have served in the Marine Corps. He showed up for a 2019 interview wearing a camouflage jacket, mirrored sunglasses, and the drill instructor hat. During the interview, he asserted he entered the Marine Corps in 1968 and served in Vietnam. The outfit is noteworthy because he was going on the Jim Norton and Sam Roberts SiriusXM radio show. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. So you've probably guessed that General Larry Platt isn't really a general. He got his nickname from the Reverend Hosea Williams because of his heroic efforts on behalf of the civil rights movement. And his hometown of Atlanta, where he remains a community activist, proclaimed September 4, 2001, Larry Platt Day because of, quote, his great energy and commitment to equality and the protection of the innocent and for his outstanding service to the Atlanta community and the citizens of Georgia. And this was a decade before American Idol, which he was not allowed to advance in because he was over the age limit of 28. Remember, you can always find the source links and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. And if you're the sort of person who feels they must point out to children that wrestling is fake, you're a buzzkill, no one likes that, stop it, explain to the child that the outcome is predetermined. I assure you, wrestlers are more stuntmen than they are actors, and the injuries they sustain over their careers are very real. I was also in local Bush League pro wrestling just briefly. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.